Voyage. After uh, my dad was home, we were all wanting to celebrate and have parties, which we did, I think. But it didn't, I'm going to say the probably thing I remember the most is that um, what drove my dad and probably kept him going through everything he went through in prison was that he was innocent. And he said, you know what, God has put me here for a reason and put me through this because I need to clean up um, this city. No one understands how corrupt it is. And he felt, he felt like he was put through this challenge in his life to, um, to show the corruption in the prison systems, to show the corruption in the police department, to show the corruptions everywhere that was happening in the state. Uh, he said that, that it had to be his calling because he couldn't figure any reason why he had to go through it. To tell to be an honest man his whole life and, they, and this happened to him. Dad, in the meantime, had gone to um, reinstating his business, trying to get money together to uh, buy heavy machinery because a lot of it had been sold, trying to pay for attorney fees um, for the first trial. I mean, he's not a man to sit around. He went right back to work trying to support his family. Voyage Media presents The Patsy. Max Dunlap resumed the life that had been so violently interrupted four years earlier, but the specter of another trial still hung over him and his family. And to the world, Max would remain under a cloud of suspicion. The only way that cloud could be lifted was a new trial. And since Max and Robison, in reality, had no contact before the bombing, it stood to reason that they should be tried separately. Max's attorney clamored for a quick and speedy retrial in order to fully clear his name while the principal witnesses were still alive and able to testify. But a new trial was neither quick nor speedy. Mike Dunlap, Karen's brother, recalled life in the Dunlap home after Max's return. You know, it was uh, fun. My dad, uh, you know, this was during my high school and uh, college years. So my dad was, you know, the type of dad that would uh, go to all the football games, uh, whether it was when my sisters were cheerleading or when my brother and I were playing. But uh, yeah, he'd be up in the uh, stands filming. He went out and got the whole setup to be able to film all of our games. And uh, he was really into it. He would cook meals for our football teams. We'd have a, a, a big uh, potluck meal every Thursday, I think, during the season. And, you know, he'd be always there cooking or donating some part of it. But uh, he loved just being around the whole high school scene and sports especially and we'd actually after he'd film it uh, a game we'd have quite a bit of our friends come over after the game and watch it at our house but yeah my dad was totally into it so it was fun during those years and uh, same thing in college he'd show up to all our functions and my dad would show up with my mom you know dressed to the nines and you know you know I can tell they'd been doing that with my sisters for the last 20 years so uh it, it was just fun to have them back in our lives but it was, yeah everything was pretty normal back then after Max Dunlap returned home Investigative reporter Don Devereaux knew that his efforts had paid off, but his sense of accomplishment would be short-lived. When Max Dunlap got his conviction overturned in the early months of 1980, uh, it, was, you know, it was quite a celebration for not just the Dunlap family, but for people like me at the Scottsdale Progress who'd been publicly saying he shouldn't be there in the first place. So we made a big deal of that on the front page of the paper and, and uh, attended some gatherings of the Dunlap clan to say congratulations, you're out and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, we kind of hoped at that time that would be the end of him being ever implicated in this thing again. Max went to federal court to try to get uh, a mandamus writ or something uh, to compel the state, if they wanted to try him again, to do it sooner than later. It was almost impossible for him to get back in business, uh, which involved, involved having to borrow money from banks and get back in the contracting business. If everybody out there thought that any given day of the week he could be rearrested and, and back in jail facing charges again. So Max wanted them to, if they're, they're going to do it, do it again you know, in this lifetime. Uh, he lost that effort and the state was not compelled to try him again soon. Think about this. The Supreme Court of Arizona in 1980 freed Max Dunlap and James Robison, but they did not exonerate them. Instead, they set aside their convictions, leaving the possibility for them to be retried. Uh, and so as a consequence, it drifted on for 13 years before he was uh, actually uh, facing a second trial. And that also meant some difficulty for Max as a defendant. Uh, witnesses that might have been available in 1980 were not necessarily any available any longer in 1993. People's memories got fuzzy. Uh, documents disappeared in law enforcement custody. Uh, a lot of things that would have made it easier for Max to go back to trial were no longer present in 1993 as they had been in, in 1990. Uh, but he just did not get an opportunity to have that addressed quickly. And so it, it was out there for 13 years. Most of us thought as the time went by that that was the end of it. That we'd never see Max try it again. That was the conventional wisdom around town. And when the state finally got interested in, in retrying the case in the late 80s when they began holding a grand jury and starting around again, it even looked at that point like they might actually do a righteous job and, and go after the real people. But within a very short time, uh, the powers that be in the AG's office got a grip on the state grand jury and it drifted back uh, toward the original case with John Adamson as the key witness. And all of a sudden we were looking at the same thing all over again. Max's camp prepared to go to trial once again and hired a top-flight defense attorney. On the prosecution side, Bruce Babbitt's successor, DA Robert Corbin, and his hand-picked prosecutor, Bill Schaefer, didn't set a new trial date for either Max or Robison. The state's star witness from the first trial, John Harvey Adamson, asked for a new plea agreement before he would agree to testify. But his requests were outlandish, and the state refused him. I'm standing outside an old textile mill converted into a science learning center in Manchester, New Hampshire, where today former Arizona Governor Bruce Babbitt has announced his candidacy for the 1988 Democratic nomination for President of the United States. A new trial would potentially expose all of the new exculpatory evidence unearthed by Headley, Devereaux, and the Scottsdale Progress, and would continue to threaten the power structure of the state of Arizona. Over the course of the years, uh, when Mr. Babbitt was first Attorney General and, and later uh, Secretary of Interior, uh, I can think of three things that he did uh, that were basically favorable to Emprise in ways that are very curious. Uh, in the early months of 1976, before Don Bowles was killed, uh, Bruce Babbitt as AG flip-flopped completely on the question of getting Emprise out of Arizona 
as a convicted corporate felon for hiding mob interests in a Vegas casino in a federal court case. Uh, Babbitt flip-flopped and decided he didn't have the authority to kick them out and let them stay. That raised a lot of questions, and that was in February of 76. In June of 76, despite Bull's dying words of Adamson, Emprise, the Mafia, Bruce's AG deliberately, I think, looked the other way and went in another direction in a way that certainly favored Emprise. And again, in 1993, when he became Secretary of Interior, one of the first things that Bruce did was sign the contract with the Interior Department conveying the concessions for the National Park Service to Delaware North Companies Limited, which was Emprise in its new persona in Buffalo, New York. Still as mobbed up as ever, but now it had a major handle on the concessions at the National Park Service all over the country, which was worth billions of dollars over the years. I can't explain. Those three dives I think he took, divestiture, the Bulls case, and the Delaware North National Park Service deal, linger in my mind as uh, among the things Bruce did that defy any rational explanation. Today, 13 years after the murder convictions in the Don Bowles assassination were set aside by the Arizona Supreme Court, Maricopa County District Attorney Bob Corbin has announced new trials for accused killers Max Dunlap and James Robeson. They will be tried separately. In early February 1993, Max Dunlap and James Robeson would each go on trial. While the attention of the nation had long moved on, the eyes of the Arizona power structure were keenly fixed on the Maricopa County Courthouse. The second trial uh, probably wasn't as overwhelming as the first trial since we'd been through that. So the second trial, I remember walking in thinking we got our, you know, we have our attorney, it's all going to go well. But I, I learned pretty pretty quick, pretty early on, um, listening to Murray Miller. I remember once it was turned over to our side so we could defend all those accusations, I went pretty much every single day. And I remember thinking like, okay, it's gonna get better, it's gonna get better. Surely he's gonna bring something up that makes us, uh, you know, is a little more convincing because it seemed to be a lot of rhetoric um, Murray kept bringing up. I just remember that uh, day after day, I would go to lunch thinking, you know what, I know he's gonna get to it. It's gonna, he's gonna get to the points that we're, we were kind of waiting for him to bring up the important issues of um, why my dad was innocent of this. But anyway, uh, I remember going to lunch one day with my mom and my dad, and it was like, gosh, it didn't seem like it was very long into our our side, the defensive side of um, defending dad. And Murray Miller um, came to us both. I was standing with my mom and dad, and he came up and said, uh, we're doing closing arguments tomorrow. And... <laughs> I looked at my dad, my mouth dropped open, and I looked at my dad, and my dad said, what? What? How can we? You haven't even called half our witnesses. And um, and I, without even thinking, said, Murray, you haven't even convinced me my dad is innocent. How can you close the trial? How can you do closing arguments? I was mad. 
And I didn't get it at all. I was looked at my dad like, don't, he can't do this, he can't do this. And he convinced my dad that he had done his job and that he was not going to be found guilty. And I'm going to tell you that it was this, it was a, a little bit of a sick day for all of us because um, I couldn't for the life of me figure out why he would not continue and finish everything we had set out as our kind of outline of what we were going to do. It was not even, it was barely halfway through it. The jury too deliberated for a very long time and came, I think was sent back three, four, five, six times, nine times, nine days and um, was sent back several times. Uh, they were a hung jury anyway with that, and the, the judges kept sending them back in there. And there were still some jurors, despite the inadequacy of uh, Murray Miller's defense efforts, who had a hard time believing Max was guilty. And uh, as a consequence, the jury was hung. And uh, the judge, Judge Hall, uh, issued a first dynamite instruction a dynamite instruction being uh, the metaphor used to describe breaking up a hung jury. And the jury remained hung for some more days, and he issued that instruction a second time. And the same wording, but the, the implications are ominous. If you expect to go home for Christmas, you, you might want to reach a verdict because we're going to keep you here for a long time if you don't. I'm standing outside the Maricopa County Courthouse where the jury has just delivered a guilty verdict from Max Dunlap for his role in the Don Bowles assassination. After the verdict was read on the second trial, uh, I'd say <laughs> a sheer shock. Um, watching my dad again, <laughs> after all this, he had been home, you know, they didn't, he had, every day he would walk into the trial with us, um, to his trial, he wasn't arrested. So to see him have handcuffed again and try to kiss my mom, I don't even think they let him kiss my mom goodbye. I mean, it was, they took him out, handcuffed him and escorted him out of the room. And I don't, it's hard for me to even re, even talk about it still because I remember thinking to myself, dear God, this cannot be happening again. There is no way. But again, I was so confused about why Murray Miller shut the trial down and then we're going into closing arguments and every, it just seemed like everything was out of control. Some of this stuff I black out of my, um, or I try to shut it out of my memory because the pain is so unbelievable to watch for a second time in one's life, they're dead. <sighs> handcuffed and led away from his family. It was tough to take. <laughs> it's a little tough to take. Okay, so when I left the courtroom, um, I want to say that my my mom was a rock. It, my mom, <laughs> to this day, amazes me that she would have the strength to walk out of there. She never, ever broke down and cried. She was the strongest, and she was the best mom. She put her arms around, of course, I was sobbing. And, uh, you know, the news cameras and all are there and you're trying to hold a brave front because I believe in my dad 1000%. And we all know, but you can't, it's like the fight it was, I mean, it's like you're fighting the world. It's just an overwhelming feeling. And we walked over and um, had to wait for the 
elevator to go take us down into the, you know, to get to our cars to get out of there. And um, when we got on the elevator, of course, we were in the, we were there for a bit while they took my dad away and whatnot. And it happened that when we got in the elevator, we were in there with um, one or two of the jurors that were on the trial. And it was so awkward. I just remember it was so awkward because I had anger that they were, you know, they just convicted my father again and they were crying. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't even know what to say. And um, well, I wasn't going to say anything, but one of them said, was crying and they said, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do that. That was not us. And I, I, I just remember getting to the ground floor and those doors opening and me thinking, well, <laughs> if you didn't want to do it, why did you do it? I mean, I just, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was like a surreal, like something, an event that you would never imagine having to go through again in one's lifetime. I mean, it's bad enough once, but then to have to go through it twice? Despite Max's conviction, his supposed co-conspirator, James Robison, was easily acquitted in his second trial. In most states, contradictory verdicts would have paved the way for an immediate appeal of Max's verdict. But Arizona allowed contradictory verdicts to stand. On Friday, January 7th, 1994, Max Dunlap was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. At this point, Max was 64 years old. I spent one year in the county jail, never expecting to see daylight. This time, instead of death row, I was given a life sentence. I was told to pack my things because I was going to be processed into the prison system yet again. I only had a bag that contained very little in it. They told me I was going to the Rhining unit of the Florence area because of the years I already spent behind the walls while on death row after the first trial. I really did not care where they took me as long as it wasn't back to death row in the basement. I did not mind the Rhining unit. I was there for a couple of months when one day they told me to pack up my things and took me into a white sedan for transport to an unknown destination. We ended up in Winslow, Arizona at another Arizona State Penitentiary. The guards there were way nicer than Florence. That was my home for several years. I was given a job there and enjoyed having something to do during my days. I spent day after day working on the Bowles murder. They had a law library that was useful. I lose track of the dates, but then again, I was told to pack my things for an unknown destination. I was then booked into Buckeye Prison, where I would remain for the majority of my prison life. I would say uh, life after the second verdict um, was depressing. <laughs> uh, everyone kind of went back to trying to just live their lives, but you know, it just is never the same without dad at home. It was, it, you know, it kind of went through a lot of stages. I'd say there was anger, just frustration and anger. And then I think for a lot of us, we kind of just gave up. Like, you know, I remember there was a time I, I was, I got obsessed with the mafia deciding I was just going to be one of them. <laughs> it was easier to 
be with them or fight where they win than to be on our side where we just lost. It was tough. Um, really, honestly, we, we went about trying to make it like it was okay, but there was nothing okay about it. Um, we went to, I think he went back to Florence prison from there. And um, at some point there, he was there for a while, three, four, five years. And then he got um, hit over the head with a by one of the inmates with a sock full of rocks and it split his skull open. And, um, and he ended up having to be in solitaire for a while and, uh, medical, we didn't know if he was going to live or, you know, and then, um, I think after that, they transferred him to back out to Buckeye, maybe. Um, I think at one point it was up in Winslow uh, we just followed wherever we went. We, my mom, every weekend, you know, um, relentlessly never missed a, a weekend with him. Um, I think in all the years my dad was gone and locked in prison, my mom missed one weekend. It didn't matter. She could be dying and she still went to see my dad. Um, she had been, uh, diagnosed with, um, a tumor in her breast and had to have it removed. And that was the one weekend she planned the surgery around um, going to see my dad. So uh, we definitely tried to do the best we could to keep life going. Um, tried to handle all whatever business, you know, was left. And pretty much it cost us eh, pretty much everything <laughs> um, through attorney fees and whatnot. So we just kind of picked up and I tried to take over and help run whatever he wanted me to do and um, for him. And that, that's been our life ever since. What happened to the other key players implicated in the Bulls' assassination who were never indicted, never brought to trial, and never punished? Bradley Funk did not live to see Max Dunlap's second trial. Bradley Funk died in 1989 of a heart attack. I think it happened while he was driving his car, as a matter of fact, uh, around town. Uh, at that time, the state grand jury that was beginning to re-examine the Bulls case was just getting active. And at that time, it looked like they might do a righteous job. And I think Mr. Funk had every reason to worry uh, that if that was the case, that this new grand jury effort in the late 80s might actually lead to him. Um, one of the reasons it might is that I was one of the witnesses before that grand jury as were some other people I knew uh, who knew pretty much what I knew about what had happened. So that grand jury had access to good information about the Bulls case. Uh, and I think Mr. Funk was um, concerned about that. Uh, and I think at this point in 89, he had an antique business in Scottsdale, and uh, he was trying to make it as a conventional business guy. Uh, he was remarried. Uh, unsuccessfully in the hotel. And I think his anxiety about the possibility of being dragged into this thing in 89 probably contributed to the matter of stress to his heart attack. He was not old enough that he should have had a heart attack when he died. So I think he must have been under a great deal of personal pressure uh, when this happened. Uh, Neil, Neil Roberts, uh, another principal in this case, uh, lived until 1999. Uh, but his life was a shambles at that point. Uh, he had multiple sclerosis, and he was in the final stages of alcoholism. 
Uh, he went from walking to a walker to a wheelchair in that period of time and became increasingly helplessly dependent on other people for his existence and died a rather miserable death as a uh, last stage alcoholic, still drinking heavily uh, in 1999. So his life went to hell. I mean, if, if there's any solace that at least one of these guys paid some kind of dues, uh, Neil paid some personally because his professional life went to hell and his personal life went to hell in the aftermath of uh, this case. John Adamson uh, got 20 years in, in prison, um, beginning in 1977, including whatever months he had in terms of time served, and spent effectively 20 years uh, mostly in federal prison in various locations during his sentencing time, and became a kind of a professional informant for various federal agencies while he was in prison. Um, I'm not sure how righteous he was, but he was doing his best to make points for himself. After 20 years of incarceration, uh, he was released into the Witness Protection Program and immediately got dumped out of it when it was discovered he was still drinking and drugging and hanging out with bad guys. Uh, he ended up on the East Coast, North Carolina, South Carolina, somewhere. And he died in the early 2000s, somewhere around 2001 or some such time, I can't remember exactly when, but the early 2000s, uh, largely of cirrhosis of the liver from excessive use of alcohol and, and, and uh, drugs. Um, and when he died, uh, people from the AG's office went rushing back to where he was living on the East Coast uh, to search his property to make sure he didn't leave anything behind him to <laughs> compromise the official case, which he apparently did not. Uh, I saw mortuary photos of John at that point, and because of his uh, cirrhosis problems, his body had sort of bloated up in the whale side. I would not have recognized him. Not. He was swollen face, huge, put on a lot of weight, uh, looked just terrible. Uh, obviously, he was in very bad shape. So his life was not exactly a roaring success either in the aftermath of, of this thing. And uh, he'd been enough of an informant uh, that even though he was no longer in the Witness Protection Program, or maybe because he was no longer in the Witness Protection Program, he probably had to spend the rest of his life being a little careful because there were plenty of people out there who would have loved to have a shot at him if they had a chance because he had ratted on a lot of people and some of them mob related. And um, John was not exactly Mr. Popper in a lot of worlds at that time. As the Bulls plot was nearing fruition in 1976, uh, Neil Roberts, as an attorney, was married to a woman named Angie. Uh, he had a mistress named Arlene Lyons, who was also his secretary, his regular secretary. And he did not want her involved in this mess. And so in the months leading up to the Bulls thing, he moved her out of his office as a secretary and hired uh, a young woman, not so young, a woman, named Eileen Roberts, in a relation to Neil, uh, a British lady by birth, as his temporary secretary to be in the office. She was not a woman who knew a great deal about Neil's past, but she was his secretary for maybe several months uh, when the Bulls homicide occurred and had witnessed a lot of things that were happening in and around his office when it was going on, who he was meeting with, including Brad Funk and John Anderson, uh, and uh, ultimately talked about some of those meetings with uh, some pointed uh, attention. Um, but she was not an expert in the, in the background, but she, she did witness a lot of the stuff that went on in and around the time of the 
a car bomb. Uh, some years later, uh, when Neil fell into bad health, uh, and she was aware of it out of a kind of a sympathy for him, uh, she took him into her condo in the Phoenix area and kind of cared for him in the back bedroom and let him live with her for a while. Uh, it ultimately got out of hand. He was drinking too much and doing some other things that she had a hard time dealing with. And he ultimately got booted from that position as well. Before he died, and while he was still living with her, uh, she had a conversation with him about the Bulls case in particular, and, and asked him about his role in it and Max's role in it. When I discussed Max with Neil Roberts, I took Neil into my home when he was dying in the most pathetic situation. I asked him about certain people involved in the case and asked where Max Dunlap fitted in and he said, well, he didn't. I said, then why has he been accused of being responsible for this murder? And he laughed and he said, well, that's quite a story. You know, Max Dunlap was nothing but a patsy. He didn't know what end was what. He didn't know what was going on. So what happened to Max Dunlap? after being moved from one prison to another over a period of years. By the early 2000s, he was in his 70s and his health began to fall. After we noticed the decline in our father's health, um, it was, it kind of, it scared us all. So we had um, talked to the attorneys and tried to do a hearing, a clemency hearing, trying to get my dad released from prison because clearly, again, he was no threat, and he um, he needed help, which they couldn't, they just couldn't get him. So we went to court, and I sat behind Francis Bowles. Um, I didn't, I don't know that I'd actually ever seen any of the kids myself. So, and I really only saw her from, you know, being on the stand and testifying why my dad should not get out of prison, and uh, you know. It kind of broke my heart because I thought, wow, in some other way, you know, maybe we could have been friends and whatnot. But she, uh, she, that family, I think, for the whole entire course of this whole, um, you know, situation, they, they always thought we were guilty, that my dad was guilty. And, uh, you know, they never even wanted to hear anything else. They, they, they just put their head down and that was it. And they weren't, you know, ever going to investigate any other avenues of what their dad had been working on. And to me, I was really sad for that. Um, and I remember coming off of that clemency hearing, which of course was denied. Um, and I got home and I was like, it just kept haunting me almost, you know, what she said and stuff. And I, and I, uh, I knew I could never call her, she would never talk to me, but I, I don't know why I did this, but I, I wrote a letter to her thinking that maybe I'd send it to her. And um, I kind of sat down and made this rough draft of a letter of what I wanted to say. Maybe it was just for me to make myself feel better, but I wrote a letter in, uh, uh, to her, Dear Francis, I realize this might not be appropriate of me to write you a letter, but after listening to you speak yesterday, I was so moved, I felt I had to. I know your speech came from years of pent-up pain and anger, 
and an incredible sadness at the loss of your father. You were truly amazing. You spoke of so many different feelings, and I sat behind you thinking, oh my God, someone actually knows how I have been living too. I'm so sad we never met because I feel we could have somehow helped each other through this time. I am Karen. I'm the fifth daughter of the Dunlop clan. As I touched briefly yesterday on my family's pain, I realized it's been nothing compared to yours. Your pain was almost unbearable. You have always known how brave your father was, but I'm not sure you understand the depth of his bravery. I have lived with this case for 32 years also, but of course I'm on the other side. As you know, we have maintained my father's innocence from the beginning. Since no one cares to listen, we set out to prove who did kill your father. When he whispered Emprise, Mafia, and Adamson, he was telling you who was responsible. He was a courageous man who was determined to link the Funk family who owned Emprise Corporation to the Mafia. He found the evidence and never let it go. They warned him to back off. Neil Roberts was the mastermind that put all the pawns in place. And Adamson was the disgusting piece of garbage that, uh, to me, that used the dynamite to send the message to the other reporters to stay away. I've worked on this case since I was 18. I'm now 48. My family has spent all of our money lost pretty much everything, trying to prove my dad's innocent. It's not for the lack of effort. It's not that no one wants to know the truth. It's too dangerous. I have two beautiful daughters that I would protect over anyone, including my father. It was a horrible time in all of our lives. I uh, tried to solve your dad's murder, but all the surveillance records and time cards and police transcripts that would have cleared my dad in the beginning were destroyed by the police department. How does that happen? Anyway, I write this letter hoping that I might lessen some of your anger for your father's senseless death. He did not die for writing derogatory letters about Kemper Marley. Kemper never cared what people said about him. He always said that if it was a true, if that if it was true, he would have just bought the newspaper and fired your dad. Please know your dad did what no other reporter had dared to do. He went after the mafia, and for that, he will forever be my hero. I wish I had his guts, but my family has already suffered enough. If my dad dies in prison, I want you to know I still have no resentment towards you or your family. I always thought the truth would someday come out, but even I have given up on that hope. I wish you peace and happiness for all your remaining life. Thank you for taking the time to read this. Most sincerely, Karen Graham. As of May 2022, Max Dunlap would have been 86 years old but he died in prison in 2009. His wife, Barbara, passed away on June 2nd, 2020. Out of their seven children, one has moved out of Arizona permanently. Six remain in the state, 
although justice was never served to the Dunlap family. Don Bull's assassination and the gross miscarriage of justice that followed is still an important harbinger for the peril members of the media face while doing their jobs every day. Uh, I went to his funeral and did a lot of people. Uh, well-attended funeral by a huge crowd of many, many, many Phoenix people who knew him for a long time and knew he wasn't guilty. Um, and that was one of the most interesting things about that funeral. It was massively attended by hundreds of people outdoors. Uh, and uh, there was a large, large bunch of folks there from the Phoenix business community uh, who were there because they realized Max had died for something he hadn't done. Looking back at this uh, ultimately sad episode from the advantage of many years later, uh, one's approach to what happened here uh, beginning in 1976, I think largely is a function of what value somebody attaches to truth. If it doesn't matter, if, as long as somebody is convicted, whatever happens, happens, it's okay. Um, maybe nobody should care. But if you really care about the truth, uh, and what happened to Don Bowles and what happened to Max Dunlap, uh, then this is an important situation. Uh, killing a reporter in the line of duty is the ultimate insult to the First Amendment, in my mind. And it's a situation where other journalists uh, should respond by making sure that the people that did, did it are identified, prosecuted, and convicted as the best insurance to keep this from happening again and again. Uh, I think it's very important if we are going to value truth, value the role of journalism, value the First Amendment, that we make sure that even as a matter of historical record, if nothing else, we, we come to a, an accurate conclusion as to what really happened here. And that's what I've been endeavoring to do. And that's something that I hope a lot of other journalists will pick up and endeavor to do in, in the months and years ahead. This is not an episode we should ever forget in the profession of journalism. This doesn't happen very often in America, thank the Lord. This only happens once in a great while. But that makes it all the more important that when it does happen, we make sure that somehow, someplace along the way, we figure it out and we get it right. And that is what needs to be done here. I don't quite know if there'll ever be closure for me. Um, I'm not, you know, I think I'm way past being angry and sad and um, I feel sorry for so many people in this crime. I don't even feel that it's just closure for our family and for my dad, but I'm so proud. I read the diary, or I shouldn't say diary, the book my dad wrote is in, in his own handwriting, his own life story in prison by the way, on yellow pads. And I read that story and I um, I will tell you, after I read the chapter on death row on the first trial, I, I, uh, I, it took me a while, but I have to tell you, I am so, I'm so incredibly proud that he's my father. I don't know that I've ever met a better man in my entire life, and I don't think I ever will. 
I was a little bit of his soldier. I took care of the stuff that he wanted me to do. And I went back to visit him and he said to me, um, honey, you know what? I'm going to stay in prison. I'm not going to try to even get out. He said, you know what? I've worked my whole life hard and I've been a good man, a good husband and father. He said, I can't leave my family penniless. And so I'm not going to sell off what assets I have left and leave you guys penniless because if it would go the wrong way, there would be no way for you to take care of um, your mom. And I always thought to myself, wow, you know, and that's the character of, uh, of my dad. And I, uh, I don't think I'll ever have closure for that. I'm proud. I don't even care what other people think of my dad. I'm so proud. But I guess it doesn't matter what other people think. We know. We know the truth. And I guess maybe that's closure enough for me. It's been 46 years since the assassination of reporter Don Bowles. Two families suffered inexplicable loss, and a nation lost an important truth-teller. But one question remains. Was justice served? Many think not. The Patsy is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced, reported, and written by Chris Leach and Adam Prince, and directed by Chris Leach. Executive produced by Nat Mundell, Karen Graham, Robert Midas, Caitlin Brown, and Dan Benamore. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by John Higgins, with additional editing by Nick Masidi and Andres Coca. Narrated by Joshua Molina. Cast credits available in the show notes. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.